0: Thank you for listening to this Podcast One Sportsnet production, available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One.
1: Rev up your engines. Adam Carolla is teaming with Podcast One to bring you Going Racing, your new favorite high-speed racing podcast. Get ready, set, and go download new episodes of Going every week on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Welcome to Real GM Radio. I am Danny Lurie, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. I'm super happy to be able to continue what isn't an annual tradition because we don't always have the time, but a a podcast that we've done a couple times and I really enjoy. I call it the Two Games In podcast with Kevin Pelton of ESPN. What we do is we go through all eight series, more brief on some than on others, and we go through what we've seen so far, what we expect to have happen during the rest of the series moving forward, and I love his analysis. I think he does really good work. And we talk about DeMarcus Cousins' injury, some of the series that have been surprising, what we think will normalize, what will keep going, and a lot of fun. Episode is brought to you by betonline.ag. You can use that podcast one promo code for a 50% welcome bonus yahoo daily fantasy you can sign up at yahoo.com daily fantasy or download the yahoo fantasy app and if you do so either way use the pod use the promo code pod 25 because then you can get 25 dollars in free play when you make your first deposit and True car great place to sell or trade in your car. This episode runs a little bit over an hour. Lots of good stuff here. I, I picked up some really interesting things from Kevin, and I think you will enjoy it as well. Thank you so much for coming on.
0: Thanks, as always, for having me.
1: I really enjoy doing this podcast with you, because this is, heavy it, it's funny. Sometimes it, going two games in lends itself to overly broad pronouncements, especially we're going recording this on Thursday morning. There will be games on Thursday afternoon and evening that will change some of these dynamics, but... I do think that it, at the bare minimum, also, it works as a, as a time capsule of where our thought process was in these series at this point. And I think the best place to start is the series that you've been covering in person because it was down in Portland, the Portland Trailblazers going up 2-0 on the Oklahoma City Thunder. What is, what have been your your most significant takeaways from this series so far?
0: The Thunder are 10-61 and on and threes. I mean, yeah,
1: yeah, I mean, and, and that's reasonable. And I think there are a couple of different, different takeaways from that. I'm sure you mean this as well. I mean, one is just that they're not hitting them. I mean, we can go all through the roster, including Paul George in game one. And the support players have not been hitting their open shots. But I, I do think that Portland has overall defended defended Oklahoma City reasonably well. Would you agree with that?
0: I think where their defense has been most impressive is in transition. And it's a little tough to separate these obvious. I'm not sure how many of their transition opportunities have been threes. But, uh, you know, that was something that Ben Falk highlighted on Cleaning the Glass before in his, uh, you know, previews of three of the West playoff series this is an important battlefield. Uh, then, you know, game one... The Thunder averaged 62 points per 100 possessions in transition. And game two, I don't have the exact number off the top of my head. I'll have to uh, stall here for a second as I look it up, but I think it was, actually it was somehow even worse than 62 p- points per 100 possession. Uh, they were so ineffective in transition. And, you know, that's, uh, like the Thunder are always going to have issues scoring in the half court. Yeah, they were at f- they weren't even 50 uh, points per 100 possessions in transition in game two, uh, which both of those ranked in the first per- percentile uh, over the course of this season league-wide in terms of transition scoring. And you know, Thunder are always going to have difficulty scoring in transition because of the fact that they don't have great floor spacing. Uh, So they need those transition opportunities. They got a lot of them in game one with Westbrook really forcing the issue before the Blazers were back, but just weren't able to convert at a high level.
1: And as you said, that puts a lot more pressure on their half-court defense, but you could also say on Oklahoma City's are, sorry, I don't come see a court offense, but also puts a lot of pressure on their defense because you have to get closer to a perfect game that way to prevent Portland from scoring. And they absolutely have not done that so far.
0: No and then the other thing uh happens there that uh, you know Portland was able to be very effective in transition game 2 because of the fact that they were generating a ton of steals uh they added according to uh, you know Ben Falk's metrics on cleaning the glass 14 points per 100 possession with their transition opportunities because they had a 207.7 offensive rating including 220 off of steals in this game, of which they had several. That was uh, you know kind of an atypical thing. The Blazers don't typically force a lot of turnovers. They don't gamble much defensively. They like to stay in position and you know create a, a really good-looking opponent shot chart on defense, but the, the sacrifice, the trade-off a lot of times is you don't get many steals that way, but they were able to just get a bunch of steals on the ball. Lillard, Harkless uh, both got multiple, and that was able to get them out in transition and get their offense going.
1: Yeah, it is remarkable, and and you think about how much more dangerous. I mean, I understand why they do. But yeah, Portland, they were thirtieth in the league at forcing turnovers in the regular season, only on twelve point four percent of opponent possessions, and it just gives them another out, another outlet for their offense. And I, I think that it, I'm not criticizing Terry Stotts' system for not generating them. That's it's a it's a feature, not a bug, in many ways, because you have to choose to concede something in order to get what you want, and that's an understood concession. And I think that something that's really bothered me about this series, in part of the reason why I I picked the Thunder, and there still is absolutely a chance that they win the series. Sometimes when a team loses the first two, you feel like it's over. This one, I think OKC is going to play much better at home. But I I thought they had really good personnel to run, not necessarily the full version, but something similar to what the Portland Trailblazers, sorry, to what the New Orleans Pelicans did against Portland last year, which was more blitzing, forcing the ball out of Damian Lillard's hands. And Portland does have CJ, and I think they've done a better job when OKC has gone more in that vein. They've done a better job than, they, than last year, which is not a surprise, at getting the ball to somebody who can who can work with it, who can make something positive happen. But Oklahoma City instead has gone to this system where they're bringing Stephen Adams out, but they're not bringing him out enough to necessarily get the ball out of Lillard's hand. So they're making shots a little bit harder, but they're not making them hard enough, and they're not forcing Mo Harkless and Al Aminu in particular to beat them.
0: They are, yeah. I mean... It feels like they could be doing a lot more certainly to do that, you know, based on the template that New Orleans set. And you said not surprising, but in some way that you know the Blazers have done a better job when that has happened. But in some ways, it is very surprising because usually that release valve for them has been Yusuf Nurkic, who's not on the court in this series, and that's you know one of the things that I expected to be a a real big issue for them with his injury when I first wrote about it when he went down. uh, You know, as much as everyone talks about the defensive aspect. Aspect of it with Ennis Cantor uh, at center, you know, I thought that that would be uh, a really crucial issue as well. And yeah, it just they, they haven't done it very much. They haven't done it very effectively. And Dame and CJ have been able to, you know, particularly in game two, Dame in both games, but CJ joining with him much more in game two have been able allowed to go off in a way that they just were never able to get to in last year's series.
1: We only have seen it a little bit, but I also was remembering Seth Curry's three-pointers, they had a couple in the third quarter of Game 2, and how... Oklahoma City to me this year, or sorry, Oklahoma City this year, if they went to the same strategy, I think they would face a little bit, other than the Nurkic part of it, they would face a little bit more resistance because I think Portland's personnel, you know, was swapping Connaughton, who who had a, a wonderful year for them, and, and Napier and those type of guys for Seth Curry, and also Stotts has tweaked the rotation a little bit. I think that Portland is a little bit better suited to that sort, like if a team attacked them that way, but I don't think they're so dramatically better at it that it would be, you know, a fool's errand to go wholeheartedly at it considering Damian Lillard just absolutely is torching them you might as well do what you can to try to have it be somebody else at bare minimum
0: yeah I think that's a reasonable adjustment for them I mean the interesting thing though is you know you look at the series thus far particularly game one the Thunder's defense has been good enough to win. It really has just been, in, uh, you know, their inability to score. And you know, to go back to the three-point percentage thing. I mean, I think part of the reason I bring it up is, you know, everyone looks at that and says, "Well, the Thunder don't have very good shooters." That's not surprising. But 16% is 16%. I mean, in the regular season, these two teams were only separated by basically one percent in terms of three-point percentage. The the Thunder thought shot. Uh, uh, 34.8, a little bit below league average of 35.5. Portland shot 35.9 during the regular season. You know, there's probably some elements of the playoff rotation for the Blazers that we're going to make that better uh, in the postseason than it would be in the regular season, and maybe mm-hmm. exacerbate that difference, especially with you know Paul George, uh, whatever's going on with his shoulder, as he insists that it's not uh, he's not in pain, uh, but it can. Continues to miss threes, but in, you know, so far the difference in the postseason is 42% to 16% beyond the arc. And that's very difficult to overcome if you're Oklahoma City. And also, even though it has happened two games in a row, not something I think that's likely to persist in this series.
1: Agreed. However, if it persists for even one game in this series, whether that's three, four, or five, it's going to be really hard for Oklahoma City to win. I mean, that's one of the most important things about holding home court for the first two games is that you've you've banked those two wins, and so then... Nothing can happen to change that. You're not going to go back and forfeit or anything like that. So now there are only five games left, theoretically, if the series goes that far. And Oklahoma City has to win four of those five in order to advance.
0: Yeah, and I think game three is really a must win for them. I mean, obviously, the the track record of no team ever coming back from a 3-0 deficit. But it also feels like there are some internal fissures with the Thunder. Uh, maybe you know, just in terms of both internally and then you know the way that uh, their series with with the Blazers has been testy all season. That I feel like if you're down three nothing going into a game four, could really come to the surface. And uh, you know, it could be similar to you know the this, the the series I always think of in this regard is uh, the 2011 second round between the Lakers, who were two-time defending champs at that point, and the Mavericks, where you know Dallas kind of unexpectedly took the first three games of the series. And then all of a sudden, the Lakers just fell apart in Game 4, and it was Andrew Bynum uh, hip-checking or, or body-slamming. I can't remember which of the two, Jose Barea, and getting ejected from that game. And and it, it just was kind of messy, and I feel like that could be the case in Game 4 if the Thunder lose Game 3.
1: Was Am I trying to if I remember correctly that was the was that the last game Phil Jackson coached the Lakers? Sure was. Yeah, and then I mean, he it wasn't the end of his coaching career because of, of what happened after that. But I mean, yeah, I remember that game really well.
0: Too. No, it wait, was wait, wait. the the end of his coaching career, not the end of his NBA career.
1: And, and his NBA career, that's right. Yeah, the whole the whole fiasco you know, with with the next. But yeah, so I, I th- so I guess the only th- the last thing to say on this series is just. How do you how do you see it playing out? My thought is I'm gonna go most likely outcome here is that OKC wins these next two, but that they don't that they don't win the series. I think at, at this point I'm, I feel like Portland is is the the meaningful favorite, even though I picked the other team and thought that this was a possibility that Portland would take the first two.
0: Yeah, same. I mean, you know, I think that as much as everyone wants to talk to you, you know, players and coaches love to talk talk about, well, it's not a series until the other team, you know, the team wins on the other team's home court. Like, well, first off, the series could could end without that happening, although I think it's uh, it rarely happens in NBA history. But second off, like now you you know, the Thunder need to win a game in Portland to win this series. They came in with four opportunities. Now they have two and three opportunities to lose the game at home. And that math works a lot worse for them. So, you know, I, I also picked Oklahoma City coming in. I thought that they were comfortable favorites, picked them in six. But, you know, now I think that, uh, you know, the odds have swung in Portland's favor where, you know, maybe Portland seven is the single most likely outcome.
1: Lots more to talk about with Kevin Pelton. But first, a message from betonline.ag. Even though March Madness is over. The most exciting time of year in the NBA and NHL is happening right now the playoffs. To get in on all the action, sign up today for a free count at betonline.ag and use that PODCAST1 promo code for your 50% welcome bonus. It's a really great time for both sports. I mean, we have the shocking upset of the Tampa Bay Lightning in the NHL playoffs, a series, a bunch of close series in the NBA going on. And so if you think you know what's going on better, better than the, the bookmakers, you can definitely test that out. And you don't need to sit on the sidelines anymore you can get in on the action and if you do don't forget to use that promo code podcast one. You can also text BETNOW, B-E-T-N-O-W to 238 You receive the same 50% welcome bonus at betonline.ag. Your online sportsbook experts. We can jump to Nuggets Spurs. This has been a, a very interesting series for me. I, I My big theory with it was that San Antonio's offense would probably be, be, fine, against the, would be fine against the Nuggets, but that Denver would just be able to score with regularity against the San Antonio Spurs. The Spurs do not have the most out defense. Going to a playoff rotation does not necessarily help their defense. It's not one of those teams where, oh, they're, they're it's just that their bench D is, is terrible and that the rest is going to square up. So far, except for Jamal Murray's completely insane fourth quarter, that has not really been the case so far for the playoffs. Denver is ninth in offense of the 16 teams, 108-9 offensive rating. And it is true that in the earlier part, especially of game two, and there were some stretches in game one as well, where they were generating open shots, but not converting those. And it was guys that you would expect. I mean, Will Barton had, the, had, a, had a rough game. Jamal Murray was zero for eight before he went eight for eight. And that makes it hard for me to necessarily know where this series is going. San Antonio has been a strong home team this year, as Denver has as well. So I, I am kind of looking for insight here in terms of how you, how you've seen it so far.
0: I mean, I think one interesting thing, uh, you know, above and beyond the shooting struggles for Denver's wings and, and perimeter players, I guess, uh, you know, Gary Harris did also have a big game, too. But that uh, they haven't been able to get much going on the offensive glass against the San Antonio defense. They were second in the league in offensive rebound percentage in the regular season and ninth so far in this series. And, you know, that's that's one way that they compensate for the fact that they are not, you know, an elite shooting team, I wouldn't say a uh, Oh when the Nuggets offense bogs down, a lot of times it feels like and I'm curious whether you feel the same way, that it becomes a lot of one on one basketball with guys that, you know, with the possible exception of Jamal Murray are maybe not that good one on I guess Will Barton is also a good one on one. But you know, in a playoff setting that's a that's a tough way to make a living if it's if it's Barton, Murray and Harris repeatedly going one on one and not seeing much of the two man game for them.
1: There are some parallels, even though their offensive systems are different, there's some parallels with the Utah Jazz where when it bogs down, then it gets into those circumstances late. So not only do they not have great one-on-one personnel, but it's generally, you know, six seconds left in the shot clock, Jamal Murray, figure something out. And yeah. those are even harder than just starting it at 16, and maybe you get a little bit of a, a little bit of separation, and then that creates a help help rotation or something else. In six seconds, you you have to try to get to something, and you can't create much for other people because you have to do it so fast that and make the pass. Basically, it has to be in like the first couple seconds there. And so, yeah, I do see that parallel. And Denver, I would say they do have better personnel for those situations than Utah does at this moment. But it can be a struggle. It can be a challenge. And San Antonio has done a, a nice job. You brought up the, the defensive rebounding from San Antonio's perspective. They've done a really good job. Also, Jakob Purtle has had a few offensive rebounds. It hasn't been a strength for the Spurs overall in the series. But it this series has been a really good reminder for me of... Kind of the theory of San Antonio's offense is that not only are they, you know, they they are strangely effective, you know, effective field goal percentage has been great in this series, despite taking in a, a, a very ancient form of, of shot selection. I can't well, actually it can't be. I, I guess they're not taking threes is old because there used to not be a three point line. And not turning the ball over, and I think that's one of the big parts of this series so far, is that it, if you never turn the ball over, San Antonio's at 11% turnover rate right now in the regular season, they were tops in the league at just 12% turnover rate. Then you get a little bit of latitude because a lot of possessions aren't going. You're not giving those away, and also that means that you don't have the. We just you just talked about how Portland was, had this insane points per possession off of off of turnovers. That you you don't have those sorts of downside risks, and that makes I think that makes San Antonio's offense more stable. And when the other team can't hit shots, stability looks pretty good.
0: It's one of the things that makes San Antonio's style perhaps a little underrated because. You know, we we talk so much about the expected points per shot by location, but there is a certain cost in terms of turnovers associated with trying to get the higher value shots. That uh, you know, the, the Spurs don't have to worry about as much because of the fact that they're not trying to force the uh, you know the create dribble penetration necessarily in the same way or, or force the ball inside. Uh, so you know, I think that is a, a hidden benefit of the San Antonio offense. You know, so far it hasn't worked great for Lamarcus Aldridge. The Nuggets have done really well against him, he's shooting thirty nine percent on twos so far. But DeMar DeRozan, the who uh whose playoff track record is fairly much maligned based on his years in Toronto has been pretty efficient in this series, uh above average in terms of efficiency despite using 31 percent of the Spurs possession so far. So, you know, I think that's that's been really you know that and then the uh, shot making by Derek White and, and Bryn Forbes uh, in the backcourt for them has sort of carried them thus far offensively.
1: This is also the series where I am the most cognizant of when we're recording this because I think Game 3, which occurs in a few hours, is going to be dramatic in terms of shifting the dynamics of this series. I still, I still think Denver has like the, the the bones of this series favor them, but they do now have to basically win a five game series where they do not have home court advantage. That will definitely be a challenge. And the way they won Game Two, it didn't seem to me particularly that they they figured something out. It wasn't that that happens sometimes in a Game Two of a series where a team has a comeback and you say, oh, okay, this is this is how their offense is going to work moving forward. Jamal Murray taking a bunch of often contested long twos is not going to be how Denver's offense moves forward, but I do think that elements like some of the beautiful cuts that Gary Harris had in the third quarter, that they played a little bit better defense as well, that some of that could carry them through.
0: And I think there may have been an element where they needed something unsustainable like that from Jamal Murray just to kind of shock the system and get them, you know, back on track. I mean, obviously they got down to nothing at home in the series. That would have been a uh, a huge, huge hole to climb out of. They've still got a little bit of a hole to climb out of losing home court, but uh, not nearly a substantial one. I, I think one point that's worth making here, you know, much talk in going into the series about the fact that it was the two teams with the best uh, home records in the Western Conference uh Nuggets 34 and 7 uh San Antonio tied for second with Portland at 32 and 9 and both of these teams then struggled both uh, below 500 on the road But if you look at it, you know, there's not really – I haven't looked at this specifically with that year's playoffs, but I have looked at it with the following season. Denver is an exception to this because of the altitude. But for the most part, home court advantage isn't really a unique feature to a team. It's more like they probably got a little lucky at home and a little unlucky on the road and that that will probably then even out in the playoffs. So I – I don't think you necessarily should think that, uh, you know, home court advantage means more in this series, dramatically more in this series than it would in another series just because of the regular season home and road records of these teams.
1: That's a really interesting point, and it makes intuitive sense to me. I mean, even even though it is 41 games, there is a, it is a small enough sample where a little bit of close game variance can make, can make things look very different. Yep. Warriors-Nuggets, or sorry, Warriors-Clippers... Feels a lot more competitive at the moment that we are recording this. The Clippers played better in Game One than I anticipated, and then Game Two, the Warriors went out really well. They looked like they were looked like they were taking control of their series, and then after a 31 point lead evaporated, there you know it's the, the getting into all the big questions about like are are the Warriors da- done or anything like that. It also combines, of course, with the Demarcus Cousins injury and everything else, and. I want to say two different things. So one is, I think the Clippers have done a really good job on the Warriors. Not every turnover that the Warriors have made has been, you know, forced by brilliant Clippers defense, but the Warriors have turned the ball over on 20.1% of their possessions in these games, which is absolutely incredible. And some of that are the, I, I I draw the line of forced and unforced errors. There have been a fair number of unforced ones, including the most memorable being that one that Kevin Durant threw behind Draymond Green and just floated out of bounds and nobody saw it. But also they've done a nice job in some of uh, forcing them. I mean, even the four offensive fouls that Kevin Durant had in the, in the second half of game two, those are turnovers as well. They're dead ball turnovers, but they're turnovers all the same. And that the Clippers have done a nice job. I mean, top locking has become a part, a part of the lexicon for this series of taking away some of what the Warriors really want to do. And Golden State over the years, this is a part of the Houston series and could be good prep for them. They're not the greatest team at handling being uncomfortable. Like, but what a defense does, it's one of, I, one of the weaknesses in my mind for Steve Kerr's kind of beautiful game system is that they just don't spend as much time getting disjointed and they have players that can handle it. I mean, we saw that with Kevin Durant last year in the playoffs. And so I'm very interested to see in game three and then game four on Sunday if they really change things around or just say, Hey, we're so much better than the Clippers. We'll figure this out.
0: Yeah, I don't know if it's wholesale changes. I think it's just better execution. Particularly, we haven't seen them get a lot of backdoor cuts against that top locking defense, which is, you know, the vulnerability of it. I mean, you, the, the one question that's sometimes worth asking when people talk about how great a strategy is, is, well, why don't teams do this all the time? And sometimes, admittedly, the answer is just because of the fact that, well, it requires a lot of effort and energy. And I think that's an element of it, too, uh, that, you know, you can't sustain during the regular season. But in a, in a short playoff series, maybe you can. But the other element of it is, if you're, Defending a the re, part of the reason that you know the, the old adage when you're like initially taught basketball as a kid is to be between your your man and the basket is because well that leaves it unprotected for a, a backdoor cut and the warrior just haven't gotten as much out of that I think as you would have uh, expected thus far in this series. But at the same time, uh, so I watched Game Two uh, with some some writers uh, and other people in a in a bar, and it was a tremendous fun to watch the end of that game because you know all of us we've been keeping an eye on it, but had sort of kind of written it off, and then it was like ah, oh, it's a twelve point game, ah, oh, it's an eight point game. This is interesting, and then the Clippers complete this incredibly improbable comeback, but. Even in the moment, it had the feeling to me of something that, you know, is not really going to be memorable outside of itself because of the fact that it's probably not going to translate into the Clippers. I mean, it might not even translate into the Clippers winning another game, but almost certainly is not going to translate into the Clippers winning this series.
1: It also functions as a great object lesson for Kerr and the coaching staff of like, see, here's what happens when you don't try or what happens right. when you don't execute. And I'm sure a lot of coaches would love to have that, especially if you could do it, not in a loss, but if the Warriors, the Warriors still have a significant talent advantage, they played strong defense in the first half of this game, and I thought they did a really good job, and then Lou Williams just went crazy. I mean, a certain element of it was the Warriors letting their foot off the gas pedal, but a certain part of it was also Lou and Montrezl Harrell and a few other guys just being spectacular. And sometimes you can't beat that. I mean, Lou dropped 50 on the Warriors in a regular season game last season and i think that you know that that could lead the clippers to winning another game when i picked this series i picked 4 and i said i should pick 5 this isn't how i expected that one to happen and they could, clippers absolutely could get a second but i don't as you said i don't i don't expect them to win the series and this Having that reminder of this is what happens when you don't, when you don't push it all the way, you know, like hey, they played, the Warriors played so well in the first part of, ge- of game two because this is a very unusual playoffs for Golden State if they're going to make it a long way because their hardest series of the first three is the second. This isn't a ramping up in any way, shape, or form. And there is even an argument, I'm not sure I would go this far yet, that if the Warriors make the conference finals, the Clippers, not necessarily in terms of talent, but in terms of the way they play, will be more of a thorn in the Warriors' side than who they play in the conference finals.
0: Yeah, that certainly could be possible. I, I did pull the trigger on Warriors in five uh, just based on the fact that you know that I expected them to take the their foot off the gas pedal at some point in this series. I, I didn't expect that to be when they already had a 31 point lead in game two at home. But, you know, the, the Warriors, as good as they are. When their effort level is, you know, at, at max, they haven't maybe been good enough this season to still be competitive when their effort level is not good. And, uh, you know, Game 2 was sort of the latest reminder of that. But we probably have spent too much time talking about this series and not enough time talking specifically about the DeMarcus Cousins injury.
1: Yeah, that, that's a good point. DeMarcus Cousins will probably miss the rest of the playoffs due to a, a torn quad I feel terrible for him personally. I mean, that, that to me is the biggest thing here is a player who last year looked like he was going to get his first playoff berth they were on pace for it and then the pelicans ended up winning that big series without him due to the achilles injury this year signs up for a team that's definitely going to have a playoff run they're patient with him he makes his way back and the part of the reason why i feel worse for him personally is that i think the warriors are better suited to handling his absence than many probably think cousin's it had a good game against the Houston Rockets, but I consider him more of a liability than an asset if if Kerr was going to overuse him. Like, you know, it, it, Cousins, it's one of those circumstances, this happens sometimes with coaches, where a little bit is really good, but a lot is really bad. You know, certain spices are that way. And I think that's kind of where it was going with Cousins, was, hey, he played well against Houston, he's going to start these games. But Houston would have attacked him aggressively. And there, that also ties in with a really interesting point that you brought up when the injury happened about volatility.
0: Yeah, uh, which is that, you know, the. It's not inherently good or bad, but if you're a team like the Warriors, you don't want that because of the fact that you're almost always the better team. Uh, so you want things to be as unrandom and as consistent as possible to take advantage of that talent edge. And I, this was actually something I had mentioned about Cousins when they first signed him, like back on uh, uh, July 3rd. Uh, I tweeted it the following day that, that you know, as, as much as at that point the, the public sentiment is the NBA is ruined again because the Warriors got Demarcus Cousins. That I it wasn't convinced as a you know even if it made the Warriors like their their overall ability higher that it didn't necessarily translate into better chances of winning the championship because of that volatility aspect and I feel like we saw that during the regular season I think both sides kind of could find evidence for what they what their priors were in the uh, with the cousin signing because there was there were times like that Houston game where he looked dominant the Warriors looked unbeatable with him in the lineup but at the same time. Overall, they weren't quite as good with him on the court as they were with him on the bench. Um, you know, and we saw his plus minus really kind of reflect that at times. Game one against the Clippers series, of that Clippers series being the ultimate example where, you know, he was a minus 17 in a game that they won by 17 points, I think, right?
1: Yeah, I think that's right. And also, you could see in the in the second quarter, the Warriors went to something that they are very comfortable with. And that was Andrew Bogut was the second unit center. And the theory of the Warriors second unit, and I use that term for basically when Steph Curry sits, usually that's when Durant sits as well, because they're not staggering those guys fully. They're doing a partial stagger now. And the theory of that second unit for the David West years was, let's defend at a high level, and hopefully we can get some buckets, and there were times that it worked, and there were times that it really didn't. Granted, in most of those circumstances, Draymond Green was also out there. That lineup was Green, Iguodala, West, and Clay Thompson. Those were the foundational pieces, and then it could switch around. Sometimes it was Livingston and other guys. And it looks more like they're going in that direction. They didn't end up doing that in the second half because of Steph Curry's foul trouble that jumbled up the rotation that also helped let the... Clippers back in the game but something else I wanted to mention to keep an eye on not only in this series but moving forward is the Warriors need Quinn Cook or somebody to fill minutes particularly when Steph Curry isn't playing his terrible defense was a part of what led to that Clippers comeback he is not a good defender he has been a bad defender and the the argument is that at least in that limited quantity of like six to ten minutes that the benefits are worth the cost he's one of the only guys on this team that can that is comfortable taking and, and often making open threes outside of their best players, but against the, against the Clippers in particular, if if Cook is in in the wrong points, it can there isn't really a place to hide him. And I thought we saw some of that. He was a part of the what I called the initial the initial seams, the initial penetrations that led to the Clippers getting just a ton of open shots in the late third once Steph Curry got in foul trouble and had to leave the game.
0: And that's where, you know, the counterpoint with those cousins' arguments last summer was, well, you know, okay, fine. They can just not play Demarcus Cousins, which I think would have been difficult for the reasons you outlined. But the other issue is by signing Demarcus Cousins, you also forfeited the opportunity to improve your wing depth by signing some player, someone with the taxpayer mid level. And, you know, even though the options I'm not sure would have ultimately been great for the Warriors, you probably could have gotten a more complete player than Quinn Cook. Uh, someone I was thinking, you know, he's, he's not a great defender in his own right, but I uh, was thinking after that game, too, that we talked about uh, earlier. Earlier, was that seth curry would have made a lot of sense actually for the warriors in terms of providing some shooting a little more size than that second unit
1: former warrior seth curry yeah, yeah. i mean and you're right and and they're also they could have gone with another wing and theoretically that second unit doesn't really need a point guard because they have a lot of i mean whatever ball handling shot creation they have is is often on other people's shoulders now that's Iguadala. Sometimes it's Clay Thompson. Not that he is the greatest in the world at that, but he, he has some of those responsibilities. It used to be Draymond in those lineups, but now he's closing the first and third quarters. So yeah, it, it is going to be really interesting to see how all of this works out. And I felt a little bit guilty. I mean, not not under my control, of course. I had written a piece that came out on The Athletic earlier on the day of Game 2 talking about how... The Warriors' best five-man lineup did not involve DeMarcus Cousins, and how sooner or later the coaching staff was going to have to embrace that. And and they did at, at moments of the regular season, like DeMarcus Cousins was not out there in those key moments. The death lineup was there, and the the death lineup was ridiculous. Had a plus thirty-two net rating this year in you know in a in a more modest amount of time because players missed time due to injuries and because they didn't necessarily need it all that often. But against the Rockets in particular, if that series comes to pass, and I expect that it will, those guys are going to need to have serious minutes. And I do think that this opens the door for starting that lineup if they need to, or just going to it more often, because Andrew Bogut, Kavon Looney, Jordan Bell don't have the weight within the coaching staff within the organization, even though many of those guys contributed more as a warrior. They don't have all the talent and everything else that DeMarcus Cousins does. So maybe I'm not saying it makes them better off because it doesn't, but it it can lead them to that destination with fewer impediments in terms of judgment.
0: Yeah, agreed with that.
1: Let's move on to Houston, Utah. I mean, to me, the biggest takeaway in this series so far is not that James Harden has been spectacular, though he absolutely has been. I mean, 32-11, sorry, 32-13-10 in Game 2 was absolutely unguardable. He was great in Game 1, and some of that I, I, I was critical of what Utah did defensively. I don't think they provided enough resistance. But to me, the biggest takeaway so far from this series has been Houston's defense. I think their defense has looked great. Utah is a particularly favorable matchup for Houston because their scheme, not as aggressive as last year, but generally speaking, is to force a team to beat them one-on-one. Utah does not have great personnel for that. But Quinn Capella has been active as a help defender, doing a nice job being two places at once. They've been getting... The other guy, you know, kind of into Rudy Gobert's airspace, they have been conceding those open corner threes. Utah does not have great personnel to hit them. They missed, I think, their first eight corner threes in game two, all of which were wide open, but some of them were Derek Favors, some of those were Rubio missing some shots, and and I think Jake Crowder missed a couple during that time as well before Ray O'Neal hit one. And so we'll see what happens with Harden, and Eric Gordon, P.J. Tucker were hitting threes early in game two, and then that made it insurmountable. But the defense can carry over, and if that's looking as good as it did last year, Houston is very, very, very dangerous.
0: You know, I didn't get a chance to, uh, to make this point when we were talking about the Clippers uh, and their defense against the Warriors. I mean, there, there's is above and beyond kind of forced and unforced turnovers. I think there are sometimes turnovers that are the result, not necess- that you know, even though it's not a steal, it's not necessarily forced in that sense. Just the constant pressure and aggravation of of you know having somebody you know on you at all times like obviously Patrick Beverly has been doing with Durant when he's been in the game in that series uh, but you know just making make, making life difficult nothing easy for the opponent and I feel like there's been an element of that in the Houston series where you know Utah runs these dribble handoffs that during the regular season no one's going to bother you know uh, you know trying to contest that or prevent that on a regular basis it just requires too much effort that you don't have during the regular season but in the playoffs. There aren't those same kind of easy routine plays, and uh, you know, I think that, that that has been a factor in, in Utah's turnovers, and is really to the credit of the Houston defense.
1: Yeah, very few system buckets for the Jazz. Also, just having players in the passing lane, something that Houston did very well in the Western Conference Finals last year, is. The windows for passes to go through are much narrower, and then that's leading to some of the turnovers. Houston, and, and I, I just thought they did did a great job overall at making making life hard. You brought brought that up. Well, a little bit different when Kenneth Farid is on the floor. I thought that the, there are a lot more points of resistance, even though Chris Paul is usually on the floor for those minutes, he, and he is a wonderful defender. He's not at that kind of a level. And also, something that D'Antoni is going to, he'll have to keep an eye on it, is that they've largely been been pairing P.J. Tucker and Clint Capella's minutes, that'll work okay against the Jazz. The Jazz don't have enough personnel to really exploit it. You know, they, they've they've looked a lot better in the freed minutes, but if they're facing the Warriors in the next round, Houston might have to change that up unless they're going to square those guys with, let's say, like with Curry or, or maybe even the Curry-Durant minutes because Golden State has a lot better talent to attack the limited lineups that Houston has been putting out there in their current alignment.
0: The other take I have on this series is, you know, there's been a, a lot of rumbling in the last couple of years about, oh, Houston just wants to isolate and, you know, uh, that you know that's this is such a boring style of play. That's not what Mike D'Antoni wants to do. I mean, obviously it's not what Mike D'Antoni wants to do. This is the man who nearly killed the isolation in the NBA uh, by bringing pick-and-roll basketball back into Vogue. But the reason they do it is because of the fact that if you try to play them two-by-two two in the pick-and-roll and you don't switch those plays and create the kind of mismatches that lead to James Harden isolation, they will destroy you. They will tear you apart. Utah, the best defense in the league, or you know, right there with Milwaukee. I don't I don't know how it actually finished out after the last night of the season where uh, neither of those teams played their regulars that many minutes. Uh, but you know, has tried to do that in this series, has not switched a ton. And, you know, Harden has just absolutely carved them up, whether it's getting the basket himself, whether it's setting up the lob for Capella, or whether it's finding the open shooter on the weak side. Like it is as close to pif- perfect pick-and-roll basketball as we have ever seen in the history of the sport.
1: It absolutely is. Utah did end up finishing the season number one. They they Milwaukee, that last game against OKC probably swung it, which is pretty impressive considering OKC didn't have Paul George in that one, which was prob- which was a, a pretty decent warning sign that he wasn't right physically. And also, Utah, what, one criticism I have, they were a little bit better at this in Game 2. In Game 1, they were really aggressively helping off of the corner when Chris Paul was the only when Chris Paul was the only ball handler in the game and the problem there is Chris Paul wants to make that pass. He would rather make the pass to the open corner 3 than finish a layup. So don't concede what he wants and the, and the Rockets were killing the Jazz on those sorts of plays and I, I it'll be interesting to see how Utah adjusts and to see how theoretically a second-round opponent adjusts, assuming the Rockets make it, which I think we, we both expect them to.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think Utah is going to play be more competitive in this series. They're going to shoot better inevitably in some of these open looks they're getting. But uh, I think it was our buddy Dan Feldman who pointed out that no team that's been outscored by 50 in the first two games of a best-of-seven series has ever come back to win.
1: Yeah, that, that's that's pretty amazing. Anything else on the West before we move to the East?
0: No, I mean, maybe that should transition us naturally to uh, Detroit and Milwaukee.
1: Yes, this can be a brief conversation. Detroit, they did have the halftime lead in Game 2, largely because Giannis was dealing with foul trouble. And they won't have many leads. I mean, maybe they'll, they'll pull some you know they have have some leads in in this maybe if Blake Griffin comes back a little bit though you you run into the question of really like what are you what are you putting him back in for if they're if you're running a risk right. of re-injury or exacerbating it because Milwaukee is winning the series they're probably winning the series in four games
0: it seems very likely I mean this was the one sweep I picked coming in and nothing that has happened so far has uh, disabused me of that notion whatsoever I mean the uh uh the the Point differential with Andre Drummond on the court has been in credible and, and not in a good way and you know he played so well for them down the stretch uh sort of playing a key role in helping them survive Blake Griffin's absence but uh, in this series just badly outmatched.
1: Still more to talk about with Kevin Pelton but first a message from Yahoo Fantasy. Yahoo Daily Fantasy is going big this year. Plenty of time to get in on the NBA playoff action. Baseball is in full swing and golf is going on. Like many of you I watched Tiger over the weekend at the Masters. That was absolutely awesome and now is the perfect time to to start playing Yahoo Daily Fantasy. If you have never played Daily Fantasy before, Yahoo has you covered. Unlike the other Daily Fantasy sites that let users enter 150 different lineups for the biggest contests, Yahoo has a 10-entry maximum. That means better chances for you to win the big contest. They're also doing the awesome MLB Yahoo Cup, which is a season-long weekly free roll with $50,000 in total prizes, $10,000 to the winner at the end of the season with $1,000 in weekly prizes, and you can join at any point in the season can also try out yahoo's innovative quick match feature it is great for beginners because yahoo will match you with an opponent for a head-to-head contest at your skill level that means you don't need to get you can't get taken advantage of by experienced players you can do one quick match contest at one dollar two 5 10 or 25 per slate and there's no management fee so you play for 10 and if you win you get 20 sign up today at yahoo.com daily fantasy or by downloading the yahoo fantasy app and if you use the promo code POD25, you get $25 in free play when you make your first deposit. Minimum deposit is only $5, and you don't have to wait on the bonus. You can use it immediately. So again, you go to yahoo.com slash daily fantasy or download the Yahoo Fantasy app and use that POD25 promo code. Also, have a message from True Car. 60 Seconds. That is exactly how long this commercial lasts. You know what else you can do in about a minute? Get an offer for your car with TrueCar. That's right. In the amount of time it takes to floss your teeth, pet your dog, do a few sit-ups, or just listen to my voice, you can get a true cash offer. Best of all, you can do it from your smartphone or home. Just go to TrueCar and simply enter your license plate number and watch how your car's details pop up. Answer a few questions and you will get an accurate true cash offer from a local TrueCar certified dealer. It is that easy. After that, you can bring your car in and they will check it out with you together. You can ask questions, get the answers you need so there are no surprises. Then simply leave with your check or trade in your car for a new ride. So, when you are ready to experience a better way to sell or trade in your car, check out True Car today. We can jump to the other series that I picked a sweep for and was already incorrect, and that is the Toronto Raptors and the Orlando Magic. The rap, you know, game one to me was a variant of a perfect storm Orlando hit a ton of threes Toronto missed a bunch of shots but and 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 so I think that the reality of this series is between game one and game two but Being between Game 1 and Game 2 is a material advantage for the Raptors. I thought their defense looked excellent in Game 2. It was notable that Nick Nurse was willing to rely on Kawhi Leonard, even though he dealt with a ton of foul trouble in Game 2, and Kawhi vindicated that faith, not only by avoiding foul trouble later on in the game, but also by being just spectacular offensively getting to his spots, even against Aaron Gordon, who is a physically strong player. And I, I really was impressed with the job that he did and and how well the Raptors defended overall.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, it's not necessarily a, a, a surprise that, uh, you know, I think Toronto bounced back to, to that extent. I mean, um, you know, I think... I I still wouldn't be surprised if we saw another one of those turns in this series where Orlando wins a close game three and and everyone panics about the Raptors once again because of their playoff track record. But you know, I, Kawhi I, again, it's not surprising that they bounce back in one game two, but the the way they did it, the dominant fashion, Kawhi's performance, it all to me pointed to why this is a slightly different Raptors postseason team than the ones we've seen in the past.
1: Very different. And also, I think Siakam is another important change here. And that crystallized for me, Nate. Now we're doing this game, at least in the early portion for the NBA cast. And so Kawhi Leonard gets into early foul trouble. Nick Nurse wants to keep him on the floor. So what he was able to do, some of this is because of Orlando's personnel, but some of it is also Toronto's, is he just put Pascal Siakam on Aaron Gordon and put Kawhi Leonard on Jonathan Isaac. I love Jonathan Isaac's defense. I'm a fan of his game. But Kawhi Leonard is not going to get in a lot of foul trouble guarding Jonathan Isaac. He's not not a big problem area for that. He's not going to force the issue with the ball in his hands too much. He'll take some threes and and allow Kawhi to help off. And having a power forward nominally that can defend the other team's small forward nominally, but that you can switch those assignments around how pliable Pascal Siakam is, it makes... so much sense it makes a lot of things fit in this team and you can also see that you know they've moved around who who Kyle Lowry is guarding in this series because they can't.
0: Right I mean and, and maybe even more so than because of the fact that they have to uh, despite you know uh, people blaming Lowry for DJ Augustine's big game one and uh, you know if it took the the outcry over Kyle Lowry's scoreless game one for him to be as aggressive offensively as we saw in game two, then uh you know, maybe ultimately that was a that was a good thing in the long run.
1: It very well could be. And I, I want to see more out of Toronto's bench. You know, Van Vliet, I didn't love what didn't love his game two overall, though it was such a weird game because Toronto had already kind of built it out a little bit and they got kind of especially towards the end it got it got disjointed but they're going to need at a certain point and that point is probably going to be the conference finals maybe philly challenges them on these but not usually in those minutes because of how philly runs the rotations but i think they'll need more from norm powell i think they'll need more from fed van vliet and hopefully presumably they will get it by then
0: yeah it's interesting this is such a difference from last year where you know it was a question of can toronto's bench you know be as important a part of part of their success in the playoffs as it was during the regular season, which, you know, partially because Van Vliet, I think struggled a little bit coming back from, uh, I think it was a shoulder injury at that point. You know, they that was a factor, and then also just you know the the tougher competition. But uh, at the same time, in you know, partially a factor of the the score being what it was, but they did get three guys over twenty minutes off the bench in game two, and that's a, a nice luxury to have it in the postseason.
1: Absolutely, my feel on this is that I just think it's going to be hard for Orlando to score. They absolutely could win another game in this series, but I expect Toronto to close it out in five.
0: Again, I wouldn't be surprised if we went through this. Oh no, what's wrong with the Raptors once again during this series? But uh, at some point, I think that you know they'll they'll take they'll rest control of it.
1: Right, and this is a series where I could see it going longer than I expect, but I do not expect the Magic to win. Like, they, you, you get right. into those series, like, I think the the Warriors-Clippers is another parallel of that. Like, it could go six games, it could maybe even go seven, but I, it, I would be floored if the Clippers won the series. It's possible, well, but I don't expect it.
0: All right, so I guess the, the then the follow-up question to that is, do we feel like Brooklyn-Philadelphia falls into that same category, or do the Nets have a legitimate chance to win this series?
1: I think the Nets have a legitimate chance to win the series. It will depend on, you know, Joel Embiid's health, if he's still if he's still limited, he he was more aggressive in terms of in game two. One of the sticking points for me in game one was how there were so many possessions where he just kind of hung out beyond the arc and was shooting some threes, was missing them also. But he's also not a great three point shooter, and he was more physically dominant in game two. I mean, the, the, he was a, a part of it, but also Ben Simmons activated a lot more. Simmons was a big part of that huge, I think it was twenty to twenty to two run at the start of the third quarter of that game, but. It also was a reminder of something that Kenny Atkinson can change if he wants to, which is that Philly, their structure is that they have five very good players. They start all five of those guys, whereas Brooklyn, partially due to overlap in positions and and star power and fit and all these sorts of things, Brooklyn has a lot more strength in their bench minutes, and they could— resolve some of that by swapping it around but they can't resolve all of it because some of their some of their players wouldn't do as well in the starting lineup and because some of them you're pulling out players who can actually help
0: yeah i mean specifically we're thinking probably here of spencer dinwiddie and the question of whether you want to start him alongside d'angelo russell even though both those guys are best with the ball in their hands uh, you know, clearly they went to that, that lineup pretty frequently. Uh, you know, I think it played about 5% as many minutes in game one as it did in the entire regular season. Uh, uh, th- that was maybe specifically those two guys and Joe Harris all being on the court at the same time, which partially a function of Dinwiddie's injury during the regular season, but also just not something they relied on as heavily as they uh, inevitably are going to in, in, in a playoff series.
1: I would actually think more just just for a couple different reasons about having Lavert in the starting five as opposed to going to Russell and Dinwiddie together they're you know Levert another guy who's better with the ball in his hands and playing him with D'Angelo Russell I think the ecosystem's a little bit tougher the balance is a little bit harder with those two guys than with Dinwiddie Dinwiddie's more comfortable playing off all even though I would say uh, that Russell is the better shooter it's just the way it's just the way their games work and sometimes that, that can happen but more Lavert is broadly speaking a good thing for me and it's not that you know Brooklyn is – they're subbing out players. Presumably my theory would be you start Russell Levert and then Joe Harris together. You pull – and Couric hasn't been bad, I don't think. It's just that he hasn't been – he's not bringing as much to the table. And – that's going, I would consider that more of a David strategy. You're going a little bit more offensive, a little bit pro- a little bit more. And when the other team is, has more talent than you, especially in that starting five, might as well try it. And I think part of what Atkinson was going for was this idea, first of all, they had the continuity stuff, but also that they can press their advantages in the second unit, use that, use those minutes to get enough to win. And there will be times that that works. I think, Denver, I think Brooklyn can win games in the series with that ethos. But it's hard to like to win a series that way in my eyes
0: yeah and you've got to stay close with those first units on the court and and that just wasn't the case in the third quarter of of game 2 where you know they they got they got Ron off the court. Uh, something else I think that will help the Nets is the return of Jared Dudley, who has been an important part of their, their bench rotation and playing, you know, both four and five, even a little small ball five. Uh, didn't play in game two because of calf injury. will be back for game three. Uh, although the focus will probably not be on Jared Dudley's play and much more on his comments about Ben Simmons.
1: Yeah, that's true and I'm a little bit concerned because calf injuries usually take some time, you know, like let's let's say a week or so and a guy can come back early either because everything's awesome it wasn't as severe as most of these injuries are or it can be because they're trying to rush him back and if that's the case it can be re-injured then he might be he might miss more time i'm concerned about that we'll have a much better idea after game three on thursday but his comments on ben simmons i i respect and and genuinely love jared dudley's honesty and I, you know, and, and most of the time I would say you know, there are all these like people always say, oh, bulletin board material that, you know, I, the, it, it gets overhyped because players are generally trying and they're they're pushing it. Ben Simmons is one of the few players in the league where I would make the argument that bulletin board material – actually makes him like could make him play better because his effort can wax and wane, his intensity can act wax and wane. And I thought that him being more active in game two was a huge part of Philadelphia's success. And so anything that pisses him off, anything that motivates him is a good thing for Philadelphia.
0: Yeah, agreed with that. Uh from a strategic standpoint, one thing that's interesting in this series is how thoroughly Philadelphia with Embiid and, and Boban and and some some assistance. Ben Simmons has actually gotten some big offensive rebounds, but how thoroughly they've dominated the offensive glass thus far. Uh, their their offensive rebound rate through two games is thirty six percent. Oklahoma City is the only other team above twenty five percent so far during the playoffs, and they are a relatively distant 30.1 percent like in philly's really just in a league of its own in terms of second chances so far in the playoffs
1: well and if you want to use the cleaning the glass filter that goes up to 43 percent offensive rebound rate
0: yeah i assume uh missed free throws factored out there
1: yeah I, and taking out garbage time because i would guess that they're not pushing as hard for offensive rebounds once in like in in the end of that game against the game two i would say that that probably you know that probably weakened the numbers a little bit and so even though they're Around league average in effective field goal percentage right now, they are the number one offensive team using cleaning the glasses filter th- through all the game twos because they've gotten so many second chance points and they've gotten to the free throw line an absolute ton.
0: And Beaubon has been awesome. I mean, I think yes. one of the big questions with him is, you know, how much can that translate into the playoffs where a team can really attack him in the pick and roll? And so far, Brooklyn hasn't I feel felt like done a ton to do that. And he's just, you know, been his usual unstoppable force at the offensive end.
1: Some of that unstoppability also comes in a way that... It's, it's surprising a little bit to me that Brooklyn hasn't seen this coming because people have been seeing it and talking about it all year is that Boban has a really pure stroke from around the free throw line. And Brooklyn has basically conceded those shots for two games and two issues with that. One, he can make that shot. And second, typically we talked about this with, you brought this up as a great point with top locking in the Clippers. When a team is conceding something, it is to take something else away. And a lot of times those Boban lineups, you know, Joel Embiid is never on the floor during those lineups, but a lot of times it's, it's a a, even more mixed, you know, more bench heavy group philly does not have the greatest bench in the world and i'm guessing it's just that they want less at the basket and trying to stop all that kind of stuff but i mean you you can just try to play it straight up and do the best that you can because philly they're not going to kill you with ball movement and cuts to me in those in those narrow lineups you know there are times when philly can be more productive and and kill you at the basket they have this crazy free throw attempt rate, but the bobon minutes are not necessarily when that's going to happen
0: No, it also, by the way, while we're talking about the Philly second unit, interesting to see them go away from T.J. McConnell after game one and really, you know, try to use Jimmy Butler and and even Tobias Harris is, uh, you know, initiators on offense and get more size on the perimeter, uh, putting James Ennis once he came back really in that spot.
1: You started this section with the question of, like, really, where does this series go? I expect Philly to win. I think they have the talent advantage and also having James Ennis back, even though he only played 12 minutes, I thought that helped, helped kind of stabilize their defense. Getting Jared Dudley back, assuming he can play regularly through the rest of the series, will be an, an ad for Brooklyn. I think this this could be a, a fairly long series. I picked it in six. I think that's about about what I would still say.
0: I think I went to seven once I saw the news that Embiid was uh, questionable for game one. And that still wouldn't surprise me. I mean, yeah, 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 and I agree with your take that, you know, just there's fundamentally something more, more legitimate about the threat that Brooklyn poses in this series, partially because of Embiid's health, than what Orlando presents to Toronto.
1: The last series for us to discuss is the one that had the most memorable game two on Wednesday, Indiana against Boston. And I was encouraged to see Nate McMillan Make some real significant adjustments after game one where they, you know, the lid went on the basket and Boston had eight points in the third quarter of game one. I thought some of that was just them missing shots that normally go in. Indiana has been an effect a very effective three-point shooting team even though the frequency isn't as high as I would like it to be some of those shots and some of their deep twos just didn't go in and they that was a, a personnel shift and a mentality shift personnel wise the biggest change was playing Aaron Holiday a little bit he only played 6 minutes but I thought those minutes made a difference and taking TJ Leaf out of the rotation but then the more important part was that the Pacers started they attacked more early in the clock they were more aggressive And that did help, but when Boston really settled down, when they they put it in, in in the fourth quarter, both in lineups that Kyrie was available and lineups when Kyrie was not available, they were making shots hard. And when they made this version of the Indiana Pacers an isolation team, the Pacers did not have the firepower to do much to capitalize
0: yeah, I mean Bojan Bogdanovich made some big shots in isolation against Dal Horford, but like if that's what you're going to, that's a that's again a tough way to live in in the playoffs. And it it just feels like when the Celtics really buckle down and play the best of defense that they possibly can, that Indiana is going to have a tough time scoring more than like, you know, ninety points per hundred possessions against that version of the Celtics at any point in the series.
1: Yeah, and I think that's a big part of why I thought Boston was going to win this series pretty cleanly. Is that we we know where Boston wants these games to go, and and they and and it's hard for Philly or sorry sorry hard for Indy in this iteration to really force the issue. Like they can be more aggressive, they can attack, but if Boston's going to switch all these things, wh- how how are they going to counter that? They, they can go to to Bogdanovich one on one. It's not going to work out too great for them. And then they can't really generate much in the way of, like, system buckets or just, you know, kind of like easy stuff other than in transition against that Boston group. And when Kyrie's on the floor, there is also a greater expectation that that team will be effective on offense, and then you have to pull the ball out of the basket more often, too.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that's their hope is that Celt- the Celtics' own shot selection becomes so poor that it kind of, you know, is, is their own problem. And we, we've we seen that at times in this series where, you know, they'll settle in the uh, – we saw it in the fourth quarter of game two where they'd settle for quick shots, like contested Jason Tatum 3 with 18 on the shot clock, and it's like, what are you doing here? Uh, whereas, you know, when they are patient and move the ball, they, they do seem to have the ability to get pretty good shots. And then if they don't, then you've got Kyrie or, or me, maybe Jason Tatum to bail you out with a, a difficult shot at the end of the shot clock.
1: Yeah. And I, I, I'm trying to think. So Terry Rozier, I thought he was, he was solid in game two. It was a reminder to me that he looks better when you don't need Rozier to really run the offense that he, you know, he brings a lot to the table and in, in every other capacity, he didn't make a, didn't make a ton of shots in game two, but he can be a part of the rotation and they need him right now without Marcus Smart on the floor to be sure. And so I talked a little bit on on last night's dunked on about Gordon Hayward. He had definitely had some moments in this game. I mean, he scored the last basket of the game for the field goal of the game for the Celtics on that nice cut when Darren Collison and Thaddeus Young were both so focused on Jason Tatum and he just slipped in behind for that easy layup. He also hit a big pull up 20 footer. I think that was in the last minute as well. But I'm still a little bit queasy about him not necessarily being worth playing in th- at the end of the games because with Marcus Smart being out, you-, you need somebody, and he's a reasonable option, but they're going to be facing, you know, assuming they make it through this series, they're going to be facing a much better opponent, a much more dangerous opponent, assuming Milwaukee is full strength or close to it, and having him out there in the closing five there will be something altogether different. How are you feeling about Hayward so far?
0: I mean, I feel like, you know, the best version of the Celtics includes him playing a large role. I mean, this, you know, is, as you may have discussed on the podcast, because I think Nate tweeted about it and, and several others did. Uh, you know, like that was the the closing five for the Celtics last night is the lineup that we expected was going to be their dominant lineup coming into the season. That I think started at the at the beginning of the year, but, you know, just – kind of fell out of favor uh, because of the fact that Jalen Brown and Gordon Hayward struggled and smart was so important. The, the two Marcuses, Marcus Morris, having the great first half to help keep the Celtics afloat uh, of the regular season. Uh, but, you know, the the best possible version of the Celtics is probably those five guys because of the fact that you've got great switchability, uh, two through four, you know, very interchangeable defenders, all of, the, all of them with athleticism and size and Brown, Hayward, and Tatum. You've got, you know... At least four, probably five, depending on your feelings about Horford guys who are able to create their own shot offensively. Uh, you know, it's the kind of lineup that, in theory, at the very best version of it, could compete with the Warriors. And it's why people are so high in the Celtics coming into the season, probably too high, in my opinion. But, you know, the the theory of that and the reality of it are, are still slightly different things.
1: Let's hope that Marcus Smart can make it back quickly, not because, you know, the Celtics are screwed without him, but because he would make a theoretical, but expected, Buck's Celtic series much more interesting. I was thinking, you know, about who who going to defend some of the best bucks in that series and it's going to fall on some some interesting characters and it it's not i don't think it's too early to look forward to that series but we're going to need to see not only who is available for for boston when marcus smart is available to come back but milwaukee is still piecing all this together nicole Mirotic is back but he's on a minutes limit tony snell and malcolm Brogdon are, are are working their way as well and so i i I'm hopeful that we're going to see something close to the full complement because those two teams going at it would be so much fun.
0: Yeah, I mean, look, you know, we've we've been kind of targeting the uh, conference semifinals in the East for a long period of time. And even though, uh, you know, most of the three or two of the four series started uh, 1-0 in favor of the lower-seeded team, I don't still think that's changed the uh, conclusion that, you know, that's going to be the round to watch in the East rather than the first round.
1: Anything else that, that picking up in terms of the East that we should discuss? I
0: think we covered the main points.
1: So wh- how I like to end these is, you know, like what you're looking for over the over the next little bit. And so how I'm going to reframe it a little bit for this series is, you know, like what games that are coming up. So we have all these game threes and then game fours over the weekend. Which ones do you think are the most central for changing, like for, for changing the dynamics or for changing the way we, we are feeling about these series?
0: So I mentioned Portland, Oklahoma City already. the That game three, I think, is really crucial. Denver, San Antonio. Yeah, you know, I think uh, that series is so close that uh, every game could be a tipping point. Uh, you know, throughout the course of it, um, and then maybe Houston, Utah, just to see how the Jazz are able to respond, and whether they can make this a competitive series or not.
1: I like that you you put in a couple where if the if the team that is currently ahead wins, it's functionally over. Like, I mean, that's yep. that's true, and and I would say that's true for all for all those in terms of games three or four. You know, Port, Portland could lose game three even if they lose it going away, but if they win game, game four, that series is basically over. Like it it teams can come back from three, one, but it, 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 it happened twice in 2016, but it's really hard. And some of the, unless Paul George is just feeling way better or something else structurally happens, it would be challenging. And it's really the same thing for me with Houston, Utah. If they have a three, one lead going back to Houston for game five, that, that to me will be a five game series. If it hasn't already ended at that juncture, I'm going to add in Brooklyn Philly partially because both of the I both those teams I think could take something really significant away from a loss or a win and so if Philly gets you know another comfortable win then, then we get it we get a feel for for where that series is going and so yeah I, I think that that's tied in as well and also I think part of it is because you know I, I obviously Boston winning game three of that series would be big but I think we know where that series is, is largely going so there isn't as much there isn't as much variance for it to create
0: agreed with that yeah
1: Well, thank you so much for taking time. Always a pleasure.
0: Yeah, thanks for having me.
1: Thanks again to Kevin Pelton for taking the time to come on. You can read his work at ESPN. Sometimes it's awesome when you can even see him on ESPN. I don't know if he has any appearances on The Jump coming up. And you can also follow him on Twitter at KPelton, K-P-E-L-T-O-N. Love having him on. Really happy that he had the capacity to do this again. And... I'm super excited recording this on Thursday morning Pacific time. Game three can often be a very important one. I like to single out in a seven-game series games two and three as really setting the dynamic for the rest of it because one can be an outlier. And so we're going to get a lot of information over the next couple days about where these series are going and in certain circumstances what will happen beyond this point. And we're looking forward to what should be a very fun second round, but the first round is far, far from over. If you want to support the show, there are a lot of different ways you can do it. You can leave a rating, leave a review in the podcast player your choosing. You can also subscribe, download every episode. Really is important for a show like this. They can come out at different times. There isn't a set date. You can't get into a habit because it depends on my availability, depends on the guests. And the single most important thing you can do with this show or any other that has them is check out our advertisers. BetOnline.ag. You can use that podcast one promo code for a 50% welcome bonus yahoo daily fantasy yahoo.com slash daily fantasy or download the yahoo fantasy app if you use the pod 25 promo code you get 25 dollars in free play when making your first deposit which minimum deposit is only five bucks so you can check that out get some money to, to roll with there which is pretty cool and true car great place to sell or trade in your car don't know exactly where I want to go for next week. I think it's just going to really be where the stories are from what's happened this, for what's happened over the last few days. And if you want more of my day to day insight dunked on Nate and I are going five times a week, very game focused right now. We'll get into offseason previews and draft stuff and all that all those fun material when there's when there are fewer games going on. And so we'll be getting to that in a little bit, but we still have lots of games to discuss. And Nate and I are doing the NBA cast a lot as well. Basically, if there is not a Warriors home game, we will be doing the NBA cast for some of the slate. We're doing, you know, a game or a game and a half on those days. So that's a lot of fun. You can watch the game with the two of us and a relatively new addition to the NBA cast is now that we're broadcasting on YouTube as well, if we are ahead of you, which is true for international streamers more than anybody else, then you can use their pause button and then you can sync up. If you are ahead of us, it takes a little bit more work. But if if we are ahead of you, if that was the problem for you enjoying the NBA cast or in this previous iteration, the Twitter NBA show, now that's not a problem anymore. And so that's pretty awesome. We really do enjoy that. Still writing up a storm at The Athletic, my off-season previews. I think the seventh one, Memphis Grizzlies, just came out. Still have a whole bunch to do, have a bunch to write and research and everything else. And I love doing those. It's a a way for me to get my mind thinking about July. And I have to start doing that before July because there's a lot of stuff to, to go through. So all of that coming up. If you have any feedback, good, bad, or indifferent, on the show... Daniel LaRue, NBA at gmail.com is the way to, to get in touch with me. I don't respond to everything, but I do read everything. It goes into a separate folder. I make sure to read everything by the end of the, the day that it comes in. That's important to me. And sometimes it's feedback to, hey, you should have this person on or whatever. And I, it, it matters to me because if you take that time, I will as well. So thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day.
0: Are you and the person you care for not satisfied with your current home care agency? Then you need to call Help at Home as we offer the highest paid wages, weekly pay, overtime pay, benefits, and do not forget paid time off. Help at Home is actively recruiting caregivers who are caring for a loved one. We make changing agencies quick and easy. Call one of our care professionals now at 412-784-6711. That's 412-784-6711 or go to helpathomepa.com. Love is in the air. And you know who really deserves some extra love? You, that's who. So treat yourself to a mental pick-me-up with Best Fiends. Unwind with thousands of brain-tickling levels and tons of cute collectible characters. Because even in the shortest month, you deserve all the me time you can get. Ready to boost your brain power? Download Best Fiends
1: free today on the App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends.